0: What gives us confidence in one thing over another? I mean, why are most of us, for example, willing to take a two-hour car ride somewhere over doing a bungee jump into a deep canyon? Now, according to statistics, the bungee jump is actually a safer activity than that two-hour car ride. You know, you're four times more likely to die riding a bicycle than doing a bungee jump. You're five times more likely to die in a one-hour airplane flight than doing a bungee jump. In spite of these very encouraging statistics, though, most of us are still not going to do the bungee jump, are we? Facts don't always settle the issue for us we're willing to take the car ride the bike ride the plane ride but the bungee jump is another thing now for me i just can't get the image out of my mind of the bungee cord being too long so that the last thing that goes through my mind after jumping head first into that canyon would be my two feet As I crumple into a bloody splotch on the canyon floor. Well, we're continuing our study and completing it. The one that we've been doing through the letter of 1 John today. If you've got your Bible, in whatever form you have it, you can flip over to 1 John chapter 5. These final verses of John's letter are his final thoughts that he wants to leave with the churches he's writing to. He summarizes and brings to a close many of the things that he's been discussing in this letter. So if we begin in verse 13, 1 John 5, 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This verse, it serves as a concluding statement of purpose for this letter of 1 John. John has written the things in this letter so that followers of Jesus Christ can know with confidence that they have eternal life. I remember when I first made the decision to give my life to Jesus Christ, I searched through the New Testament, reading book after book of the Bible, wanting to know for certain that I was really saved that I was really forgiven for all of my sin, that I could really know that I was a born-again child of God through faith in Jesus Christ and that I was going to heaven when I died. See, I needed to see it stated in the Bible itself before I could rest confidently about my eternal state with God. It was like I was doing a bungee jump off of the platform of my life, relying on this bungee cord called Jesus Christ, I needed to know I could really trust in Him. That I could have confidence that He was big enough and strong enough to hold me through whatever came and to get me home safely to God in the end. John's purpose in writing the letter of 1 John was so that we can know that we have eternal life. We noted last time that everything revolves around the Son of God, Jesus Christ. If we have Him, we have everything. First John 5, and 12, the last two verses we read last time, it says this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. John mentions a number of things in these final verses of the letter that believers can know. As we've already mentioned, we can know that we have eternal life, verse 13. Verse 14, we can know that God hears our prayers. Verse 15, we can know that God answers our prayers. We can know that when we are born again of God, a child of His, that our life will no longer be characterized by sin, verse 18. We can know that Jesus Christ keeps us safe from the evil one, verse 18. We can know we are a child of God, in verse 19. and We can know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we can know God, it says in verses 19 and 20. So verse 14 says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him we can know that God hears our prayers. You know, almost everyone prays to God in some way, asking Him to do things for them. Even people who claim to not believe in God pray to God when they're in a jam. And God can choose to answer the prayers of anyone, but He has promised to answer the prayers of His children in Christ. I want us to note well What John writes here, though, it says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. John also writes about this earlier in his letter in chapter 3 and 321. He says, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. So collecting all of this together, John tells us that for us to know that the Lord hears and answers our prayers, we need to be seeking to live a life that pleases the Lord, which includes believing in Jesus Christ and seeking to love one another, it says here. And then in 1 John 5.14, John also tells us that we need to be asking according to the Lord's will. See. You may be thinking, you know, I've asked God over and over for something, and it seems as though he doesn't hear me. I have not received what I have been asking for. We can ask ourselves first, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Have you placed your confidence in him, believing that his death was a sacrifice for your sins? Do you believe that he came back to life on the third day and is now living to make intercession for you before God in heaven? This is the first being needed for us to know that our prayers will be heard and answered. Do you have right motives for your prayers? James 4.3 says, when you ask, do you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You see, God, he's not a cosmic genie to do as we command, granting any wish that we might have. Instead, He's a wise father who loves his children more than we can comprehend. Our prayers can be so foolish and selfish sometimes. Let's be grateful for the no's as much as we are for the yeses. Is the thing that you're asking for consistent with the will of God for your life? If you're asking for something that's contrary to the will of God, you you can't expect to receive that necessarily. God would be a very irresponsible father if he simply gave you and me everything that we ask for. I remember a time years ago with one of my daughters. She was about three at the time. And she was in the backyard helping me build some forms for pouring concrete. And I was using this claw hammer for hammering nails, building these forms, and I gave her a little toy plastic hammer to use. And she was hammering away on little pieces of wood, pretty satisfied with that for a while. But then she decided that she wanted to use my hammer. But I wouldn't give it to her. It was too heavy for her. She could have hurt herself with that big hammer, dropping it on her toe, smashing her fingers, or something worse. Well, maybe the reason the Lord has not answered your prayer is because you're not ready for that thing that you're asking for. Maybe it's something that you would injure yourself or someone else with. Maybe the weight of it is too much for you. Maybe it just isn't meant for you. Maybe it's just a really bad idea for you to have that thing. As God's child, we can have confidence even in the answer of no and not yet because we know that He is always looking out for us. My daughter, she wasn't happy that I wouldn't let her use that big hammer. Sometimes we aren't happy that our Heavenly Father doesn't let us have the big hammer that we're asking for either, but we need to trust that our Father knows best for us. When our prayers are are not answered the way we want, we're being forced to trust the Lord, and that's a good thing. We're not God. He is. We're not all-knowing. He is. We can't see far down the road how everything is going to end up. He can. Some say that in order for our prayers to be effective, they need to be specific. I'm not so sure about that. How often have we found ourselves burdened with trouble, needing the Lord's help, but having no clue about how to pray, not understanding what's going on underneath the trouble well enough to pray with any kind of insight or wisdom. Romans 8, 26 and 27, it tells us that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us when we don't know what or how to pray. And I'm so grateful that I can trust in the Lord at times like that, knowing that He understands everything and knows the best way to handle things. I don't have to understand how to fix things and then pray that way. I need to know who to go to who knows how to fix things. Sometimes just crawling up into our Father's lap and letting Him comfort us is all we can do and it's all we need to do. Romans eight twenty six. it says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Our prayer is most effective when our desire is our Father's will above us our own, following the example of Jesus when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane that night before he would be crucified, and he said, not my will, Father, but yours be done. Lord, give us humble, trusting hearts that want what you want. Verse 16 says, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin, that does not lead to death. You should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is sin that does not lead to death. John moves from talking about the confidence we have in approaching God through prayer to praying for others. Interceding through prayer for others, it's an important service that we should take seriously. When someone asks us to pray for them, we should do it and do it with sincerity. Too often, you know, people go, will you pray for me? And they say, yeah, 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 no problem. So go, okay, And then that's the end of it. We should pray. If we see a brother or sister caught in a sin, we should pray for them. We should go before the Lord on their behalf. We should intercede for them. We should fight for them in the spiritual realm through prayer. We're told that God will give them life, it says here. With, this is a, a promise for us to take hold of and to use to motivate us to continue to pray for them. Now, what should we not do if we see someone caught in prayer? Well, first, we should not participate in the sin with them. That's, that's a good thing. Cannot do. And also, we should not talk with others about how concerned we are about them, which is just gossip by another name. Over in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, we're, we're given a little bit more guidance about this uh, topic as well. Paul writes here, he says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourself so, or you also may be tempted. So who is qualified to help the person caught in a sin? It says, you who live by the Spirit. The one who lives by the Spirit is the person who has the new life that comes through Christ and is walking by the Spirit, keeping step in the Spirit, a person who is seeking to live their life in a manner that's consistent with the desires of the Holy Spirit for us. Or to put it, Another way, a person who has the mind and the heart of Jesus, who is thinking the way Jesus thinks, who cares about the person the way Jesus cares about the person, who shares the same motives Jesus has for this person, is someone who is themselves seeking to follow and imitate Jesus in their own life. Well, how are we to keep Or or how are we to help the person caught in a sin? It says to restore that person gently. The Greek word translated restore. It's used in the medical field to refer to setting a broken bone. It was used in the fishing industry in those days to refer to the mending of nets. It meant to put something back in its proper place to mend what is broken and damaged. The goal is restoration of the person, to make them whole again. The goal is to restore their relationship with the Lord and with their brothers and sisters in Christ. The goal is not to embarrass, to humiliate, to diminish, to shame, to belittle, to make them pay in some way. The Greek word translated gentleness, it can also be translated as mildness, humility, meekness. We're to restore the person in a spirit and attitude of humility, meekness, handling the person and the situation in a gentle, caring, humble manner. Paul says, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. We don't want to forget our own weakness and vulnerability. The, the role could easily be reversed. We should treat others in the same way that we would hope to be treated if it were us. We should use this warning to inspire compassion in our hearts toward our brothers and sisters who may be struggling with sin. Jesus said over in Matthew 7, 1, he says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is a sober reminder of the humility and the compassion that we should have whenever we have to take on this difficult task of confronting a brother or sister about their sin. See, with the measure that we use, it will be measured to us. With the judgment we pronounced, we will be judged. So be gracious, kind, be merciful. We want to make sure that in our effort to help someone else see the error in their ways, that we're not turning a blind eye to our own sin. Jesus tells us to take care of our own sin before we start pointing out other people's sins to them. We don't want to be the person pointing out the speck in someone else's eye while we're stumbling around with a plank sticking out of our own. John mentions a sin that leads to death here, and we're not completely sure what John is referring to. This is something that has puzzled Bible scholars for centuries, actually. Some think John may be referring to the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which we find mentioned in places like Matthew 12, 31 and Mark 3.28. In that story in the Gospels, the religious leaders were accusing Jesus of doing his miracles by the power of the devil rather than by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus was referring to when he mentions the unforgivable sin was the settled condition of the hearts of these people who were deliberately and defiantly refusing to acknowledge the work that the Holy Spirit was doing through Jesus and instead attributing it to the devil. The reason a person in this condition isn't forgiven is not so much because God refuses to forgive them, but because this person refuses to receive God's forgiveness. Now, some think John may have the false teachers in mind that he has been dealing with throughout the letter of 1 John. The false teachers, they denied the work of the Christ, the Son of God, for the salvation of humanity. They rejected the dying of the Christ on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. By denying the sacrifice of the Christ, they had literally sawed their limb off the tree of salvation. There was nothing left for them. If you do not have the Son of God, you do not have life, it says. The one who rejects the atoning death of Jesus Christ for their sins has rejected reconciliation with God. Now, if you're worrying that you may have committed this sin. I want to encourage you that you have not committed it. See, your concern that you may have committed this sin is proof that you have not committed it. The person who's committed this sin doesn't care that they've committed this sin. They have no guilt over it. If the Holy Spirit is still convicting you about sin in your life, and your own conscience is still sounding alarm bells in you about your sin, then you have definitely not committed this sin, whatever this sin might have been that John's referring to. For you and me, I can't think of any sin that anyone has ever committed that would be beyond the grace of God and His willingness to rescue you or them from, and to forgive them if they would open their life to him. Verse 18, John writes, You know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. John restates an idea here that he has been heeding on throughout his letter that those who are truly born of God do not continue to sin. They have turned from a life that is characterized by sin to a life that is characterized by love and obedience to God's word. Now, John doesn't mean that believers will never sin. He has already addressed this. We have talked about this more than once in this letter. But as a reminder, he writes in 1 John, the same letter, Chapter 1, verse 8, he says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. The righteous one he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours but also for the sins of the whole world the difference is in the character of a person's life and their motivating desires the new life of the spirit that is in us has the character traits of our heavenly father which is righteousness John gives believers a great promise in this verse, too. It says, the one who was born of God, Jesus Christ, keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. Over in John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. He keeps them safe. 1 John 3, 8. John says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. 1 John 4, 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Jesus Christ keeps us safe. The evil one cannot harm us. Verse 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So in contrast to the protection that we have from the evil one as a child of God, the world, he says, as a whole is under the control of the evil one, Satan, the devil. Most people who are outside of Christ would not see themselves as under the control of the evil one. And actually, they may actually even resent having such a thing said about them. When John says they are under the control of the evil one, he doesn't mean that it's something that they have consciously chosen for themselves, though. 2 Corinthians 4.4, for example, it says, the God of this age, the evil one, Satan, the devil, has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But when the good news about Jesus Christ is heard and the Holy Spirit opens a person's mind, giving them understanding. A beautiful life transformation takes place. Verse 20 actually makes reference to this. It says, You know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true by being in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. This understanding that we are given it's the same thing that John refers to as an anointing from the Holy Spirit back in 1 John 2.20 that we looked at a few weeks ago. We now know Him who is true. We are now in Him who is true. We are in Him who is the true God and the real, true, eternal life. This is a really a, a final punctuation mark on John's refutation of the false teachers. They are false, false, false. God and what he has done for us through Jesus Christ is true, true, true. Finally, verse 21 closes this letter with these words. He says, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. When we think Of an idol, we might think of a statue in the likeness of a pagan god or goddess. But an idol can be anything that replaces the one true God's rightful place in our life. What D.L. Moody said some 150 years ago is as relevant today as it was when he said it. He said, you don't have to go to heathen lands today to find false gods. America is full of them. Whatever you love more than God is an idol. Martin Luther said, Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God, your functional Savior. Timothy Keller made the point that idolatry can simply be the turning of a good thing into an ultimate thing in our life. Timothy Keller said, when anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and self-worth, it is essentially an idol, something that you are actually worshiping. You see, one of the things that makes idols so destructive for us is we are building our life, getting our sense of worth, getting our sense of purpose and meaning, getting our source of joy and fulfillment, from something that is literally less than ourself, since an idol is a God of our own making. Only the one true God is adequate for building, sustaining, and growing our life upon. Dear friends, brothers and sisters, let us keep ourselves from idols and put the one true God where he belongs in our life. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we want to thank you for this letter of 1 John that you have taken us through over the course of the last several weeks. And Lord, we pray that the truths that John has taught us in this letter would be things that are written on our hearts. Father, that we would believe. In Jesus, as Savior, as Son of God, as the atoning sacrifice for our sin, that we would obey your commands, Lord, and that we would love one another. Those three great truths that John repeats again and again throughout this letter, make them so in us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.